1: All right, welcome to the show. Thank you once again for joining us. Whether you are a first-time wrong thinker or an experienced pro, I want to welcome you to our ranks. Yeah, we may be few in number, but here's the thing. Truth is truth, whether everybody believes it or not. And truth is the driving dynamic behind this show. Not that I have cornered the market, not that I claim to, uh, to know all truth. I don't. But I'm pretty serious about pursuing it. And I assume that you are probably here. You're probably here because of some similar drive. You're, uh, you know, you're getting partial truths or half truths or maybe some blatant untruths in other places. I try to give the best that I can in terms of content content that reflects the truth, and uh, more importantly, allows you to make up your mind as to okay, so does that ring true or not? You don't have to agree, but uh, I feel like I should point out this isn't just an act that I put on about, uh, hey, I'm the truth teller. <laughs> no, this is, uh, this is what drives pretty much everything I do on a day-to-day basis. And I guess it's fitting that, uh, that today of all days, I would uh, start the broadcast with, uh, with an acknowledgement of the guy who more or less set me on this path. Now, he has no idea. I don't know, maybe he does at this point. Uh, Rush Limbaugh. Passed away. Um, I don't know the details other than it was announced this morning. His wife, Catherine, uh, went on the first few minutes of the Rush Limbaugh show and announced that, uh, in fact, uh, you know, the the king of of talk radio had passed away. This was not exactly a surprise. I'm thinking it was a little over a year ago that uh, Rush was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer and uh, he never wallowed in victimhood. Oh, poor me. Look at what a horrible lot I have in life. Uh, it was just about a year ago that President Trump gave the Presidential Medal of Freedom to Rush Limbaugh. I think at the time I may have commented. I think that was actually a well-deserved recognition of what this guy had done with uh, with his platform and, and with his, his microphone. But I want to take a minute here just to to acknowledge something. That, and that is, look, the people who hated Rush Limbaugh and, and almost... Guaranteed. The people who are hating on him the hardest, the ones who are dunking on his grave right now, just, oh yeah, I've been waiting so long to say this. These are the people who, when he was alive, could not refute what he was saying. They didn't know how to argue. They couldn't uh, rebut his sense of humor and his sense of satire, which unfortunately for them was was aimed at uh, a lot of, uh, you know, leftist politician hypocrisy, although I think he took a lot of uh, politicians from the right to task as well. But uh, Rush Limbaugh, with, without a doubt, spoke the truth with no apology. He would not be intimidated. Political correctness bounced off him. Like uh, pistol bullets bouncing off an M1 Abrams tank. And this infuriated his critics. They could not make him afraid. They could not make him humble or repentant. And look, I, I understand the guy was first and foremost an entertainer. And, and that may hurt some people who think, oh, he was a real conservative. Look, he probably did embrace real conservative values but i'm telling you what made him a success was not the fact that he was a conservative it was the fact that he was a conservative who knew how to entertain and man did he do it in spades oh the the song parodies that uh, his friend paul shanklin uh, would create for him the vocal impressions i mean the most dead-on bill clinton impressions and schwarzenegger and others it was it was incredible And I have to say that one of the things that I'm most indebted to Rush Limbaugh for is it was his show. It was his influence that put me on the path to thinking for myself. Because I had sworn up and down. I've told you before. I said I would never do talk radio. Who would want to do that? It's boring. It's, you know, it's words. Music is where it's at. That's That's where the cool factor is. But Rush made it fun to understand the the complexities of of what was happening politically and culturally. He made it fun to stand up for and defend those things. And I'll admit, one of the big early draws when I first found out about him, I I learned about him from a friend in Oklahoma. I went back to to visit some of the folks I had known when I was a a missionary there back in the 80s. And uh, one of my good buddies, Pa Snart, (laughs) asked me, you ever hear Rush Limbaugh? Because Posnart had heard that I was in radio and so assumed I must know everybody who's in radio. Um, no, I hadn't heard of Rush Limbaugh, but uh, he says, oh, well, a lot of folks around here swear by him. And within a few months, I think I heard my first broadcast of the Rush Limbaugh show and immediately I understood. OK, I can see why people are swearing either by him or at him. Uh, the guy was wickedly funny, had a, had a very powerful uh, intellect and just this amazing Persona on air, very, very cocksure, bombastic. Yeah, I know what's right. You know, with half my brain tied behind my back, and and with talent on loan from God, you know, he was quite a spokesman for the conservative viewpoint. And the fact that he would use humor, I think, is probably what uh, has enraged his most uh, uh, vehement critics. You know, even in his death, they just they can't let it go. He made fun of us. It's like that. That was worse than coming out and, you know, calling them names. He ridiculed them, which I guess shows ridicule can be a pretty powerful tool. Now, I'll admit in the early days, there was nothing I liked more than listening to Rush Limbaugh dismantle some argumentative caller who was calling in to to tear him apart. I remember when his, his appearance on the Phil Donahue show. And and the very first question, you know, Phil takes the microphone. OK, audience, who, uh, who wants to ask a question of of Rush Limbaugh? And this woman stood up and the first words out of her mouth was, who the hell do you think you are? And the crowd just went nuts because, I mean, this is Donahue's audience, right? So they're just, yeah, you know, take him to task. And and Rush answered her question. Now, he put her in her place, which I thought was pretty cool, too. But um, he just cited for a chapter and verse, ma'am, I'll tell you who I am. I am the most successful talk radio personality. I actually he said I'm the most successful radio personality in the history of radio. I talk to 33 million people every week and he listed off his list of accomplishments. I'm on this many stations and you know and and, and this is something that that I have created myself and uh, he says and I'm protected by the first amendment which allows me to to uh, to do all of this just as it protects you to be whatever the hell you think you are. And it was just like wow. <laughs> He was very good at uh, at the, the dude could argue. He he knew how to to put people in their place. And yes, as a budding talk radio personality, I definitely emulated him and of course mimicked him when it came to tackling those uh, argumentative callers. And you know what, it plays well. It's you know, it's it's one of those things that will in fact draw an audience. Now, at this point I want to point out there came a point where I evolved Beyond my Rush Limbaugh face, and I don't mean that to sound like because he was stupid and I was smarter, you know, I just reached a point where I found my own voice. I found my own path and I would like to think uh, Mr. Limbaugh would have been proud that at that point uh, my trail and his went different directions and he continued doing what he was doing, which I think for for a lot of people was this was the, the first real introduction to conservative thought that most of them had had. And while there were many things on which I think he was absolutely right, there were some pretty significant things on which I didn't agree with him as well. And that's okay. Because the key is I never would have arrived at the point where I was ready to start really thinking for myself. Had it not been for a a great mentor who never knew he was mentoring me, but nonetheless showed me how, how fun it was, how valuable it was to have informed discussion about the issues. And I don't you know, people say, well, who's going to replace him? Who could possibly do it? Um, Look, I think this guy was an original. I think he was a he was an authentic character. And I don't mean somebody he just played. I think he was he really was a one of a kind personality. So I wouldn't look for somebody to fill his shoes so much as I would look and say, "Okay, who's the next innovator? Who's it going to be? You don't really need a Limbaugh clone. You don't need somebody who's just going to get out there and parrot the talking points. Uh, somebody that can step up and, and, and set the standard, which is what Rush did. So, haters, go ahead and hate. Look, I, I, if I were in your shoes, I would probably feel the same way. He was very difficult to refute. He used humor. And it was very powerful. And he built this incredible audience of tens of millions of people and then kept that audience and stayed on top of his game for decades. You just don't see that very often. And and more importantly, he kept going right to the end. He continued until he just wasn't able to go any further. So rest in peace, Mr. Limbaugh. I am forever indebted to you for putting me on the path to thinking for myself. And I'd like to think that wherever you are, you are just a little bit proud of those of us who graduated from you and found our own path and let's hope that there are other people that will be following in our paths as well we'll be happy when they graduate as well
0: this is the brian hyde show This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right. Welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part today by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, Rio Del Sion, Home Lots, and Monticello College. By the way, Dr. Shannon Brooks from Monticello College will be joining me on the program uh, next Monday. We're going to talk a little bit about Georgics. If you haven't heard about it, go, uh, go find a copy of uh, Homer. <laughs> yes, Homer the poet. And, uh, and you, can, you can find an excellent series of poems about uh, working with your hands and feeling the earth and partnering with nature to raise animals, to raise you know, your own food and so forth. All right, let's let's uh, let's bring it back on path here and talk about a couple of items of interest today. I wanted to, to mention that uh, here we are fast approaching the one-year mark of uh, the COVID crisis. I'm actually starting to see a few things pop into my Facebook memories from a year ago that are starting to hint, hey, what is going on here? You know, there's something uh, going on with this virus out of China. Little did we know that in about a one-week period during the middle of March, we would totally realign how government operates at almost every level of society. And there are a number of lessons that we can glean from looking back over the last year, especially when we look at how authorities responded to the COVID crisis. Got a great essay here from Robert E. Wright. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. And he talks about a pandemic of ignorance. And I think he correctly identifies how the most lasting damage that we've seen has been a result of this uh, pandemic of ignorance more so than the actual impact of the coronavirus. So here's how Robert E. Wright puts it. He says America's biggest problem is ignorance of proven precepts of political economy. Now, he says, I don't mean fancy econometric techniques or models full of malarkey. In other words, much of professional economics. He says, I mean the basic irrefutable concepts and empirical regularities that he then sketches out in the rest of this essay. If those had been widely understood and applied a year ago, he says states would not have locked down in response to a highly contagious virus, deadly only to a relatively small and easily identified segment of the population. All the costs associated with lockdowns would have been avoided and the number of excess deaths would have been lower, if not nil. Now, he says, if you think not wearing a mask or attending a social event kills, you should consider the deadly effects of the perhaps well-intentioned, but ultimately self-defeating government policies that defy the lessons adduced below. In fact, he says, Reason recently released a short, fun video of three deadly policies, including China's infamous famine-inducing Kill the Birds campaign. Some brainiac in Mao's Central Communist Party, or China's Communist Party, observed that birds ate grain and concluded that fewer birds would mean more grain for his comrades. Dutiful Chinese subjects killed birds, including insect-eating ones. Well, the population of grain-eating insects therefore spiked, so grain production plummeted instead of rising. And because the Chinese did not engage in much trade then, famine ensued. In other words, people died from lack of food. That prompts lesson number one, which Robert E. Wright identifies as doing nothing, is often better than doing something. He says many ostensible problems are homeostatic, in other words, self-correcting. Current trends, up or down, do not usually accurately predict infinite bad things, like global temperatures, the number of contagious disease infections, or infinitesimal, infinitesimal good things, economic output, the number of puppies, but rather fluctuations within stable systems. In other words, he's saying trends are merely uh, often parts of a range-bound cycle rather than indications of an impending nirvana or Armageddon. Only exogenous shocks like an asteroid strike or a panoply of ill-advised laws or executive orders can destroy the dynamic equilibrium of such systems, which thankfully abound in both nature and society. He says, in this case, birds and insects check each other's numbers and trade based on market prices and numbers and trade, he says, based on market prices alleviates famines. Now, the reason video also mocks New York's abysmal covid-19 vaccine rollout here. Robert Wright says the state compounded the negative effects of its poor website design with punitive sanctions on HCP or healthcare providers who were unable to vaccinate New Yorkers before the vaccines went bad turning healthcare heroes into zeros with the stroke of a bureaucratic pen. But what do you expect from a state that lied about how many nursing home residents its policies killed? Which, by the way, is uh, that is a scandal that for some reason the press considers radioactive. They won't get near it. But the rats are starting to desert the sinking ship, and it's not looking good for Governor Cuomo. And probably rightly so. Some very, very bad decision making. The question is, will there be accountability? In his case, there just might. Lesson number two, market competition beats government monopoly almost every time. A lone young woman was able to create a better COVID-19 vaccination website than the state of Massachusetts because she only had two small children at home to contend with instead of the bureaucratic morass in Boston. That allowed her to be able to somehow figure out that putting vaccination locations and available times on the same webpage was both technologically possible and something that might induce people to sign up instead of to give up. Now, in their defense, state website bureaucrats in New York and Massachusetts were confused because they usually are instructed to make government websites as useless as possible, lest a single mom be able to collect unemployment or a teenager to obtain a driver's license without a hassle. When things go bad, it's natural to blame the status quo or popular representations of it. Robert Wright says when some 7% of the population of St. Louis, 4,577 people, died of cholera in 1849, for example. Residents naturally blamed the sundry voluntary associations, including an impromptu, extra-legal committee of public health that had taken responsibility for public health upon themselves. Now, while understandable, he says, the reaction against volunteerism was unwarranted because what killed the Missourians was as an as-then unknown pathogen spread by drinking water infected with human sewage, not a particular institutional structure. Businesses and schools spontaneously shut themselves down as deaths mounted. But, of course, people continued to drink water and to defecate in the usual places and ways, so there was no stopping the spread. Knowledge of the causes and cures was what was needed, but something that governments rarely created then or now. So instead of prompting smart policies like a Vickery-Clark-Groves auction to efficiently and fairly distribute COVID vaccines, government officials offer inefficient, politicized, overly complicated, top-down plans that please almost no one. This prompts lesson number three. Everything comes at a cost even when it appears to be free. He says, I mean that beyond the Econ 101 concept of opportunity cost or guns or butter, in other words, time or other resources expected to achieve goal X are no longer available to achieve Y. Even policies that seem like a free lunch can be very costly indeed. For example, if a government exempts a producer from liability from its product people will assume that the risks the product poses are substantial. Otherwise, why would liability exemption be asked for or granted? If the goal is to induce people to use the product, a wiser policy might be to triple or to mandate rather triple liability. Of course, that too comes at a cost, maybe a monetary one like higher COVID vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine prices, or maybe a safer product brought out later after more thorough testing. He says still millions of people have calculated that the expected benefits of receiving a COVID-19 vaccine outweigh the expected costs. And he says bully for them, but they should not bully others socially or through government policy to do likewise. Millions are already immune. Millions prefer natural immunity to vaccination. And millions are at higher risk from vaccines than they are from viruses. The growing numbers accept the, uh, let's face it, for most slim chance of dying rather than continue living in the midst of a confused majority. Now the next lesson, lesson four, is that popular ideas are not, proper, are not necessarily right, morally, or empirically. Unfortunately, we are up against the clock here, so we will come back to that just the other side of our bottom of the hour break. Again, this is an article from Robert E. Wright from the American Institute for Economic Research. This is really one of my favorite go-to sources for information on COVID-19. They're very nonpartisan. I think they're very fair, and I also think they're very thorough in how they research things.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part today by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Yep, if you have commercial insurance because you run a business, you already probably have a lot of other hats you're wearing too. So this is just one more area where you got to have some expertise. you got to really know, do I have the proper coverage? Or are all my I's dotted, my T's properly crossed? It can be a bit much. So if you find yourself in need of some help, I would recommend get in touch with my friends at at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. There's a very convenient link that will take you to them in my show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com. These are the show notes for uh, February 17th. Just click on that; it'll take you right to them. You can tell them thank you for being sponsors of this show. Lesson number four. This is from uh, Robert E. Wright. A pandemic of ignorance. And these are some of the lessons that those in authority could have learned and should have learned over the last year based on how they responded to the COVID-19 crisis. Lesson four, popular ideas are not necessarily right, morally or empirically. He says American Institute for Economic Research's own Ethan Yang just won a major international award for espousing a similar point which has been lost in the mists of of time and the misty eyes of reputed advocates of democracy. He says, I'm sure you've heard the joke about democracy being between uh, two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. According to the wolves, it's in the public interest that the sheep sacrifice itself for the greater good. The sheep knows it's all hogwash, as in, why not wash off the hog and eat it instead? Which is why the sheep vote with their feet when wolves are afoot. Well, unfortunately, human wolves are more difficult to spot than the real thing. Instead of hiding in the weeds, they lurk in the swampy crevices of legislation and regulations, waiting to trick unsuspecting voters into supporting policies not in their best interests. Through various subterfuges, including larding the titles of laws with popular words like affordable, patriot, and safe When those tricks prove insufficient, human wolves claim scientific backing because few voters dare to question the uh, women and men in white lab coats, even though ironically they are the people whose claims should be interrogated the most thoroughly, which prompts lesson number five. Scientists are usually wrong by design. Here's why. Science isn't about proving theories. It's not about rejecting hypotheses. Scientific theories spawn predictions that good scientists empirically test. If the predictions hold up, the theory can stand as it is for now. If they do not, if a theory's hypotheses can be rejected in the real world, the theory needs to be modified until it collapses entirely and must be replaced. Only through that method are theories with low predictive power jettisoned and ones with higher predictive power taught to students, used to guide public policy, and subjected to increasingly sophisticated testing. So he says Americans' lodestar should be that scientific method, not blind obedience to somebody in a white lab coat, even or especially those cloaked with the authority of government. Scientists, you see, are subject to the same public choice critique as government officials. They may work in their own self-interest rather than those of you, me, or some vague public. Robert E. Wright says even more disturbingly, government public health officials do not face significant checks. Scientists outside of government may challenge the conclusions of government scientists, but cannot prevent politicians from using their theories, even ones that do not make accurate real-world predictions to justify sweeping public policies. As a consequence, many Americans suffer the ill effects of social distancing policies, even though the scientific method rejects the hypothesis that lockdowns and mandatory masking help to stop the spread of COVID-19. Ironically, scientists have not rejected the hypothesis that social distancing mandates are downright counterproductive. So you put together all five lessons of political economy, especially with some of the elementary knowledge of statistical tricks... And it would have allowed Americans to better assess policymakers' claims about COVID-19 transmission, as well as the best ways to mitigate it, and hence, peacefully to resist unprecedented policies of dubious constitutionality and little scientific method. I'll have this in the show notes, which you can access at the thebrianheidshow.com. Again, a fabulous article from Robert E. Wright. All right, shifting gears. You're going to see right away why I wanted to share this article from J.D. SEal with you. The headline, politics is seeping into our daily life and ruining everything. And I want to ask you a question just as, as kind of a thought starter. If you are being perfectly honest with yourself, how often do you allow partisan reasons to guide your decisions in how you choose your job, how you choose your brands, how you choose your friends, how you choose to watch something on television? The reason I ask this is because uh, J.D. Tuseel makes a very strong case here that politics is seeping into our daily lives and it's ruining everything. And if there's some good news here, it's that that's actually something you and I can solve for ourselves. He starts with the question, is there anything politics can't ruin? The answer, it appears, is a resounding no, as partisan conflict creeps into all areas of American life. Our political affiliations, researchers say, obstruct friendships, influence our purchases, affect the positions we take on seemingly apolitical matters, and limit our job choices. As a result, many people are poorer, lonelier, and less healthy than they would otherwise be. Political polarization is having far-reaching impacts on American life, harming consumer welfare and creating challenges for people ranging from elected officials and policymakers to corporate executives and marketers. That's according to a new paper in the Journal of Public Policy and Marketing by researchers from Arizona State University, the University of Wyoming, and four other U.S. universities. The researchers find that people's chosen political identities become self-reinforcing through associations with groups with shared beliefs. Our associations can even create a group-specific shared reality that makes it harder to relate to those with opposing views. Man, does that sound like what we see happening today? The article goes on to say, as society becomes increasingly polarized, politicians' objectives diverge and their animosity toward the opposition grows, thereby reducing opportunity for compromise. Partisan incivility is a major reason for failed dialogue. Uncivil exchanges in, result in disagreement and greater polarization regardless of the evidence presented. People's partisan identities influence the range of people with whom they're willing to have relationships, the brands they purchase, even the jobs they take. J.D. Tuseel says in an era of public health concerns, people often choose positions on matters such as vaccines or mask wearing, not based on a rational assessment of the issues, but on a plug-and-play adoption of their tribe's stances. And this sort of politicized decision-making can stand in the way of rational choices as well as healthy connections. Researchers say with, polit- or with political positions influencing decisions... People may sacrifice wages, lose out on jobs, make suboptimal purchases, and disregard opportunities to save. For example, they say research has found that employees accept lower wages to work for politically like-minded entities, and people may select higher-priced products or ones that offer less functional value. They also say polarization has the potential to prevent neighbors or colleagues of opposing parties from developing friendships. And this ultimately deprives individuals of intellectual diversity, among other things. Now, J.D. Tuseel says the finding that everything is becoming politicized builds on a growing mountain of data. Even before political tensions hit their current fever pitch, a 2018 survey found nearly two-thirds, 64% of consumers around the world either buy or boycott a brand Because solely because of its position on a social or political issue. By the way, the number for the U.S., 59% of consumers say that's that's how they sort. In 2020, a separate survey reported 83% of millennials find it important for the companies they buy from to align with their values. So that means that the price and utility of products and services are actually secondary considerations for many people. Taking a backseat to companies' public posturing, Many business executives have risen to the challenge, advocating positions on gun control, immigration, and race relations, whether, they be, whether because they sense an opening to promote their opinions or just a marketing opportunity. Christine Mormon, writing for Forbes, said those leaders, or these leaders rather, hope that their political activism will help shape public opinion and potentially lead to lasting change, while simultaneously cementing their reputations as moral leaders and change agents. Now, she also noted that as as of 2018, most marketing experts considered this a bad move with potential for alienating both customers and employees. Now, since that time, since 2018, the trend has only intensified, especially after former President Trump's challenge to election results and in the wake of the January 6th riot at the Capitol. Recent events accelerate a broader movement in business to address social and political issues, according to a January 15th piece in the Wall Street Journal. This politicization of all things great and small is what another researcher referred to last summer as the oil spill model of mass opinion polarization. Somehow that brings to mind a very a very useful image, the oil spill model. We'll come back to that just the other side of these messages. Please stay with us.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Well, that didn't take long.
1: I'm I'm seeing the first uh, the first tongue in cheek meme here. This is uh, let's see, it's a it's a tweet from Rush Limbaugh. Tune in this Thursday, the 18th of February, to hear our bombshell report on Hillary Clinton. I'm confident this information will lead to her arrest. All right, it's tough but fair. Rush would probably laugh at it. <laughs> All right, going back to our article about how politics is seeping into every part of our daily life and ruining everything. This is, uh, this is an article that I shared uh, from uh, J.D. seal talking about how it's it's like an oil spill. In fact, he he gives the example um, this is this is how uh, Pennsylvania State University's Daniel Della Posta portrayed the oil spill model of mass opinion polarization. Daniel Della Posta says, what if polarization is less like a fence getting taller over time and more like an oil spill that spreads from its source to gradually taint more and more previously apolitical attitudes, opinions, and preferences. This was in a study published in June 2020 in American Sociological Review. He said even many initially apolitical lifestyle characteristics, from musical taste to belief in astrology, can become politicized as signals for deeper beliefs and preferences a tendency most saliently captured in the popular image of the latte liberal. So J.D. Tuseel says Americans then are increasingly making decisions along tribal political lines, potentially depriving themselves of rewarding friendships, better paying jobs, well-reasoned judgments, optimal goods and services, but by choosing beverages, beans, sports equipment and employment according to tribal affiliation they're also losing points of shared interest with the people who disagree with them. The people they see in their neighborhoods, at concerts, in their chosen restaurants, likely share their views on hot-button issues, because those who disagree live, party, and shop elsewhere. And that further reduces the opportunity for connections across partisan boundaries. Worse, he says, when the political tribes are so divorced from one another, in terms of preferences and lifestyles, it becomes easier to target the enemy by going after their ways of life. So with conservatives largely living in rural areas and ex suburbans, or rather uh, liberals, confining themselves to the cities and the suburbs, the groupings have shrinking overlap in terms of their interests. So it's pretty easy to hurt opponents by targeting pastimes and brands for boycotts, regulatory action, or legal restrictions. Dave Sprott, Dean of the University of Wyoming's College of Business and one of the authors of the Journal of Public Policy and Marketing paper, says, I think we're all aware of how political polarization has affected our elections and our system of government. But he says the impacts go far beyond the political arena. Ultimately, polarization harms mental and physical health, financial welfare, relationships, and societal interests through its impact on psychology, marketing, and public policy outcomes. So J.D. Tuseel winds it up by saying, look, there's nothing we can or should do about people's lifestyle choices, but we can give them less reason to fight. He says making politics less important through reducing the ability of government to affect our lives has the potential to make us all healthier and happier. Now, I know for some people that's anathema. Oh, no, we can't we can't turn our backs now. This is the political fight. It's only beginning. And, you know, the, the problem is. Every time you get the state involved, every time you allow some other aspect of life to become politicized, it ends up pitting us against each other in some kind of zero-sum game. So this is sound advice. Make politics less, in- less important. Reduce the ability of government to affect our lives. In other words, strictly limit where and when its influence is going to be used. Don't use it as a tool to punish those who disagree with you. Use it as a tool to protect everybody's rights. Now, I know that's a tall order. And politicians don't operate on the idea, well, yeah, that's, that's why we have government in the first place. No, they're, they're more operating under some kind of a mindset that's like, well, hey, we're here to do what you can't do for yourself. In this case, legally force your neighbor to toe that line. Bake the cake, or whatever it may be. Can we not see what happens when we use the force of government in the place of persuasion? Or just accept the fact that some people are not going to be persuaded. But you take that force out of the equation, and guess what? As long as your behavior is peaceful, as long as my behavior is peaceful... I know this is going to be shocking, but I'm going to tell you, we can hold very different points of view, contrary even, and the world can still go on functioning largely as normal. But too many people, myself included at some times, have been persuaded that, yeah, but in this case, it's okay to harness the power of government and its accompanying force to make them toe this line. And, of course, we get it back in return every time the pendulum shifts the other direction. Conservatives are learning a lot about this right now. Less government means less opportunity for mischief. But it starts with you and me making a a vow to ourselves that I'm not going to try to control other people. Or I'm not going to try to force other people to do what i want them to do. I'll try to persuade them. And it's a lot of work. And they may still say no. But it's a better way. And it's much more conducive with freedom. And and I can hear it. Look, it's coming from the left and it's coming from Brian, what about people who just won't do what we think is right? What the majority thinks is right? And my only question is this, is their behavior peaceful? Yes or no? If their behavior is peaceful, leave them alone. It's none of your business. If their behavior is not peaceful, all right, then we've got a problem. It may be the appropriate thing to bring the state in and make a correction. But again, it comes down to that that little tyrant living in our our skull-sized prison. The one that just is is determined. We've got to do this, otherwise somebody's not going to do what's right. I don't know why this is so hard for, for people to grasp or where we got out of the habit of minding our own business and letting people pursue happiness in, in whatever way, peaceful way they see fit. But we certainly have come a long way in this direction. And of course, you know, the covid stuff has, has just made this even worse. Uh, you know, what was the oh this is the thing that just makes makes me just sick. It was a video of a woman in California. She worked for the state. She's a, she's a COVID enforcer of some sort with the Department of Health or something. Prior to the Super Bowl, there was a business which um, sells alcohol. I don't know. They sell beer. Or they sell liquor or something like that. They were doing delivery, which I guess was totally legitimate under COVID guidelines. But because of the heavy demand for alcohol prior to the big game, they allowed for people to come and pick up orders to go from their establishment. So in came this b- bureaucrat and she shuts them down. You guys are violating our guidelines. You can send it out for delivery, but you cannot have people come here. I'm going to have to shut you down, which she does. And this is the part of the video. This is on the, the surveillance video of the actual store. She thinks she's alone. She does. I don't think she knows she's on camera. But once she's got them shut down, she starts to celebrate. No, I mean, literally, she starts to dance in place and clap her hands like, "Uh, uh, uh, I just ruined your life. It feels so good. And the scary thing to me is I believe that mindset isn't just limited to that poor lady who would celebrate getting to flex her authority, however limited it may be, you know, just a little bit. I think there are actually millions of people out there with that same authoritarian mindset and that same desire to celebrate because they got to, to push somebody else around or they got to they got to boss somebody else around. And it's not just the, the mask enforcer who's standing outside your supermarket. It's the common customer who's walking along feeling empowered, recently empowered. I'm going to go out here and I'm going to make sure everybody is towing the line. Pull up your mask. Where's your mask? And, you know, they become uh, the, the police of sorts. Oh, and they get a contact high when they do encounter someone with actual authority. Look, I'm not telling you these are people you should hate. I don't want you to go and confront them and tell them they're bad. I'm asking you to do something that's actually a little bit tougher. I'm asking you to look into your own heart and see if you don't have a little tyrant lurking in there waiting for an opportunity to get out there and flex on somebody. Because if you do find that little tyrant lurking in there, you got a couple of choices. You can exile them to some place where they really have no say. You can carefully take them between two fingers and drop them down a well. But at some level, you got to be willing to root them out. Because that is what a decent person
0: would do. This is the Brian Hyde Show.